think it says breathe out by God. There we go. That way we start recording for those who aren't able to make it. So again, welcome. Uh, we'll get started. And before we do that, I just want to say a word of prayer to ask the Lord's help that we can understand what he wants to teach us. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this group of people, Lord, who are concerned about learning more about you, which we all should be concerned with. Lord, thank you for uh, our ability to do this. Thank you for uh, the means you've given us to do it. And I just ask, Lord, that you would help us all um, to understand you better and your word better as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, uh, we'll get started. So last week, just as a quick recap, um, we talked about Revelation, not the book of Revelation, but the two major types of Revelation. Does anyone remember what the two major types of Revelation were that we talked about? General Revelation and Special Revelation. Yes, and we talked about those, and if you missed last week, uh, the notes are in your book, but also uh, if you go on to the church's website or Faith Life um, page, then you can re-watch. Or, well, what you'll see is you'll see the slides and just hear my voice on there, so that way you don't have to look at me, which is maybe why that's better in some ways. But uh, anyway, uh, but I would encourage you if you haven't, uh, if you weren't here last week, to hear that. That'll help you to understand a little better too of what we're going through as we build foundations as we go forward. So, um, so we're going to talk about inspiration tonight. Now, inspiration in our world and how we often think of it, it's, it's quite a watered-down version from what we talk about when we're talking about Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture, because there's all kinds of songs, You're My Inspiration, and things like that. Um, that's not what we're talking about, but we'll hopefully understand as we leave a little bit more about what it means that God inspired the writers of the scriptures um, and why that's important to us. So I want to start out with our first... There's a few scriptures that we're going to look at. And the, the first one here is from Paul's second letter to Timothy, starting at chapter 3 and verse 10. He writes, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. This is our key. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, we have a word here that's in the, the of course, you are, probably know the, the 
New Testament is mostly written originally in Greek, so we have translations into English. But there's a word here in the Greek, this is the only place that we find it. It's theopneustos, and it means inspired by God. So that's that word breathed out by God, inspired by God. And so that's the only place we see that exact Greek word used. And so we want to find out tonight, or hopefully we'll have a better understanding, what does it mean about the Bible's inspiration? And so here is a paragraph from the Lexham Survey of Theology to try to help us give us a start. Inspiration is a divine action that creates an identity between a human word and a divine word. The term inspired is found only once in the English Bible, in 2 Timothy 3.16. In that passage, it translates a Greek term, a Greek term that etymologically, that's just, etymology is just a study of words, so it's a big word. It means breathed out by God. The idea would probably be better expressed as expired rather than inspired. To breathe out words is to speak them. So, to say that a prophecy or a book, as in 2 Timothy 3.16, is inspired means that it is God's very speech, that the words in question are the word of God. Although the Bible does not use the terms inspired or inspiration very often, it refers in other languages to many words given to human speakers and writers by God that function as divine utterances, that is divine or God's speech. Scripture refers in this way to the original document of the Ten Commandments, to the words of true prophets, to the speech of Jesus, and to the preaching and writing of the apostles. Now, last week, and this will be in your notes, I gave kind of a long, I don't think I read it out loud, but um, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, there's a long statement about the Bible. And part of that said, all... Uh, which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. So all the words that are found in Scripture are to be considered the rule of faith and life. Now our next passage that kind of mirrors what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy is found in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 19 to 21, where Peter writes, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So men that prophesied did not produce their own prophecy. When we get to a future lesson on canon, that is the books of the Bible, why we have the books we do and why we don't, that'll be a future lesson. Um, But in that lesson as well, we're going to talk a little bit about what do we do with people who say today, I have a word from the Lord, or God's told me to tell you such and such. What do we do with that in light of the fact that we look at Scripture as the actual words of God? And so that'll be a future topic that we'll cover. But there's another term that we have to 
maybe be familiar with a little bit, um, a theological term, and that is plenary inspiration. Plenary inspiration. So what does that mean? If you've ever been to a big conference and say they have one big meeting for everybody, and then that'll be called the plenary session, right? And then sometimes, so this is at like if you ever went to Alliance General Council, you'd find this out, that they have the plenary session. That means it's for everyone. And then they have breakout sessions or whatever else as well. So plenary kind of means all. So what is verbal plenary inspiration? Now, I've given you an entire web page there, what I printed out. I'm not going to read all of that. But I do want to look especially at the second paragraph where it says, Inspiration, the quality of being God-breathed, refers to the fact that God supernaturally guided the authors of the Bible to write exactly what he wanted to communicate. Everything in Scripture is there because that's what God desired to say to humanity. The extent of that inspiration is defined by the dual terms verbal and plenary. Verbal means that every word of Scripture is God-breathed. Every single word, not just the ideas behind the words, is in the Bible because God wanted it there. The word plenary means complete or full. When used to describe the inspiration of God's word, plenary means that all parts of the Bible are equally of divine origin and equally authoritative. So, hopefully that gives you a little better understanding of the word plenary and what that's meaning in this sense. Um, but all parts of Bible. So, you, you don't say, well, John, the Gospel of John is more inspired than Paul's letter to Titus, for example. We don't say that. We say all parts of Scripture are equally inspired. The complete Scripture was inspired by God. And... I want to look at just one other, a couple other spots in this article. I'm not going to get read the whole thing again, but I think um, a few more uh, paragraphs down. Um, It says, What verbal plenary inspiration does mean is that all the words, forms of words, combination of words, and wording in the Bible are God's divine intention for Scripture. In other words, God gets what he wants. And the words he wanted to be in Scripture are the words we have. Okay? Then I want to also say at the beginning of one of those paragraphs, it says verbal plenary inspiration applies to the original manuscripts of the books of the Bible. So we don't say that that applies to every translation that's available today. We say it applies to the original manuscripts. And and we're going to have a whole class on translation and what that means but we're going to talk about how you know, men and women have tried to translate the Bible the best they can into modern language so that we can understand it in our heart language and our understanding so that we don't all have to learn ancient Greek to, to worship God and know his Bible. Um, but, but we'll talk about that in the future. But it's important, at least for this evening, I want you to understand that when I'm talking about verbal plenary inspiration, or even inspiration in general, we're talking about the original manuscripts. So that would be in the Old Testament in Hebrew, 
and also in the New Testament Greek, and then there is some Aramaic language too that part of the Bible comes from. Um, so I'll let you read the rest of that for the most part on your own. Um, and so let me see here. Where am I at my notes? So there's been a lot of questions over the years of the church history and all the people that have made a life study of Scripture about how did God do this inspiration. Okay, so they have, well, did he dictate it word for word, they might say, or did he just give them an idea and let them put it into their own language? And those are very interesting things to explore Um, But we need to remember that sentence I read just a moment ago, that what it does mean is that all the words, the forms of words, the combinations of words, and the wording in the Bible are God's divine intention for Scripture. In other words, regardless of the actual mechanics of how God did that, how he used those human writers, what we can trust is that the words of Scripture are indeed God's words. Um. And I have some quotes here that I thought were helpful from B.B. Uh, Warfield. Um, the first one says, What this church doctrine is, the doctrine of inspiration, it is scarcely necessary minute, minutely to describe. In other words, we don't need to get down into the weeds too much. It will suffice to remind ourselves that it looks upon the Bible as an oracular, that means relating to an oracle. Okay, We know what an oracle is. Uh, words of God, um, as the word of God in such a sense that whatever it says, whatever scripture says, God says. So not a book then in which one may, by searching, find some word of God. In other words, you don't have to go through the Bible hoping, oh, eventually I'll find the, the little parts that are from God. But it's a book that which may be frankly appealed to at any point with the assurance that whatever it may be found to say, that is the word of God. So we can trust the whole thing. We don't have to go through the Bible and say, um, well, here, here, this part, I think that must be what God is saying. It's all of what God is saying. The next quote from B.B. Warfield is that such a word of God, each one of us knows he needs, not a word of God that speaks to us only through the medium of our fellow men, men of like passions and weaknesses with ourselves, so that we have to feel our way back to God's word through the church, through tradition, or through the apostles, standing between us and God, but a word of God in which God speaks directly to each of our souls. Such a word of God Christ and his apostles offer us when they give us scriptures, not as man's report to us of what God says, but as the very word of God itself, spoken by God himself, through human lips and pens. Of such a precious possession, given to her by such hands, the church will not lightly permit herself to be deprived. Thus the church's sense of her need of an absolutely infallible Bible has cooperated with her reverence for the teaching of the Bible to keep her true in all ages to the Bible doctrine of plenary inspiration. What B.B. Warfield there is celebrating is that what I said a moment ago, where what do we do with this person that says, well, the Lord has told me thus and such, you know. Um, 
you know, if, if a preacher went too far on that, he could have a heyday, and many have, right? I think the Lord is telling me that one of you should fill my tank on the way home from church, you know. That could be abused very easily, couldn't it? We don't have to trust in that. We have scripture. We don't need men to tell us what God is saying to them, and then they can tell us. We all can go to the word of God, and that is such a great thing to celebrate. That's what he's getting at here. And he says there at the end of such a precious possession, hey, the church is not going to lightly give up on that. I hope he's right. I hope he's right because sometimes we look at some of the churches in our world today and I kind of wonder, have they given up on it? Would they rather hear from the guy who says, I've got a word for you, than to hear from what God says through Scripture? But I trust that all of you are here because you want to know God's word better and trust in it and have better confidence in it so that you don't have to trust me or Pastor Ryan or anyone else for what we're going to say, say to you, but you can go to the word yourself. It's a beautiful thing. And that last quote from B.B. Warfield, I, I thought all these were good, so I included them. We believe this doctrine of the plenary inspiration <clears throat> of the scriptures primarily because it is the doctrine which Christ and his apostles believed in which they have taught us. It may sometimes seem difficult to take our stand, frankly, by the side of Christ and his apostles. It will always be found safe. It may be difficult to take that stand. It will always be safe. This is where you're safe. Know the word of God. Have the word of God. Study the word of God. <clears throat> and that's where you're safe. I thought I had a bottle of water here somewhere. I'm going to grab that. Sounds like they're having fun back there. All right, we're going to look at some more scriptures here. And I'm going to move a little quickly because I want you to have this discussion time at the end. But Moses, in his office of prophet, you know, Moses was many things. One of the things he was was a prophet. Uh, He predicted that not only would he have prophecy from God, words from God, but he predicted there would be future prophecy as well. In Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is Moses speaking for the Lord. And whoever will not listen to my words that he will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And interestingly here, we see in Luke chapter 16, verses 29 through 31, a sort of confirmation of this. It says, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, this is the story of Lazarus. You remember Lazarus and the rich man? But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, God's word is always authoritative. Always. Whether men believe it or not, and if they do not believe the word, they won't even believe if they see someone who's risen from the dead. That's what Jesus is saying here. If God's word doesn't convince someone, no preacher can, no argument can. God's word is the first and last source we need to know the truth about him and his plan for salvation. That's the term sola scriptura that you hear sometimes. 
It means God's word alone is what we use to guide us in faith and practice. Jesus said in John 5, verses 45 to 47, Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is showing that Moses had authority to write, and he's also showing that his words are confirmed as well by what Moses wrote. He's basically showing us how Scripture begins to weave together. It's a beautiful thing, especially if you have a reading plan where you read part of the Old Testament and part of the New Testament every day, you will begin to see some amazing connections, how Scripture is so, so connected with each other. But Jesus believes the words of Moses had authority and that they appointed to himself. And Jesus also believed in the authority of the Word of God in respect to the Word of God being eternal. He said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Further, Jesus said that his followers, that's us, should not be ashamed of Jesus or his words. Mark 8, 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The angel Gabriel told Zechariah that he should have believed his words. And that's because as a messenger for God, Zechariah, uh, or Gabriel's word held authority. Gabriel's words had authority even before they were written down, but the fact that they are recorded in Scripture gives us further affirmation that this is actually something that happened and something that was true, and these were real words that were said. That may remind you of something I said last week, and this is in your notes from last week. It's a quote from the Lexham survey. Uh, many words of the prophets were eventually written down, and some of these f- form part of the written special revelation, but the words of true prophets and apostles are authoritative even before they were written down. So when Gabriel spoke to Joseph, when he spoke to Zechariah as well, they, those words were authoritative right then. Now we have even more confirmed about their authority because we also see that they're in Scripture, which gives us even more confidence. Luke 1, verse 20, You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So that's when Zechariah, maybe we'll be learning about this again at Christmas time, but uh, he was told he was going to have a son to name him John. And Zechariah questioned the angel a little bit. And so he said, okay, you didn't believe me. You're not going to be able to talk for the whole pregnancy. Um, which, uh, I don't know if that was a blessing or a curse. But it might have been either way. It might have been both. But anyway, uh, what, what the point of that is, is that Gabriel's words were authoritative words from God. Gabriel was God's messenger. His words had authority. Later on, they were written down, and the written word now carries the authority of God. Another go-to passage, and I won't read this whole thing, but the, another go-to passage about the word of God, of course, is in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, and verses 1 through 14. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 14. You can read the in-between part on your own later. It's a great passage of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And then down in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews starts out with a bold statement that in the past, God spoke to people in various ways, but now he's spoken through his Son. And it says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So salvation ultimately is dependent upon our trust in the truth of Scripture. It is a faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But salvation is ultimately dependent upon our trust in the truth of Scripture. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You see how Jesus connects the belief in the word to eternal life? He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, this is very, very important. How are we saved? By faith alone, in Christ alone, right? But where do we learn about where our faith should lie? Where do we learn who Christ is? So many people may say they're saved, but the Jesus they claim to follow is very different from the Jesus that we find in Scripture. This is the Jesus of the Bible. We need to know who the Jesus of the Bible is. Our faith needs to be saving faith, and the only way to know whether what we believe is the right thing to believe is to go to the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures say. So we have that term sola scriptura, which means the scriptures alone. And the emphasis is the Bible being the only basis we have for faith and practice. A lot of people skip the faith part. They go on to the practice. They say, we need the Bible to practice. But we need the Bible, we need to understand the Bible for faith. Because we need to have faith in the right thing. People have faith in all kinds of things. We want to have faith in what really will save us. And that's the Jesus we find in the Bible. And this is why I think sometimes we have to be careful. And this might offend someone. I'm not trying to offend anyone. But sometimes we use these little simple tracks. I'll tell you a little story. You may have seen this lady with really big hair. She used to be on TBN. And she came into the store one time where I worked at Walt Disney World years ago. And she gave me a little tract. And it had about five little verses and a little tiny green bible and uh and uh she was kind of famous it was kind of interesting but sometimes we take these little tracks with three or four or five bible verses and we hand it to someone we might even read it to them and then we say a prayer with them and then we stand up at the next prayer meeting and say hey i led someone to christ maybe that's not the best way to evangelize i'm just going to throw that out there I like what the Gideons do when they do street witnessing. And I've been with my dad, who is a Gideon, uh, when they've done this. They open the Bible to the verses that they're going to talk about. They show people on the pages of Scripture. They aren't afraid of offending. And they don't shrink from the power of the Word of God. They open it for the people. If you've ever used one of those little tracks, I'm not putting you down. I'm just throwing it out there that... If we can open the scripture to the pages and let them read for themselves, that can be really helpful. So this is really important because even without intending to, 
you could share the gospel in an incomplete way or even an inaccurate way, depending on how that person perceived the three or four verses you gave them. Because if you don't explain what the verses mean, no, all have sinned and so fallen short of the glory of God, and uh, they're forgiven and they have justification through faith in Christ alone, and the person can say, wow, that's great, I think I'll take that, thank you very much. Is that a complete understanding that led them to salvation? We have to ask, or should we have had more time to explain better? But if you point people to the scriptures, and if you encourage them to read it from themselves, you'll be far better off, and they'll be better off. So life comes. Life comes from these words that are breathed out by God. Spiritual life. Actually, resurrection from the dead comes from these words. And the disciples who stayed with Jesus, they understood that his words were eternal life. John 6, 63 to 68, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, Jesus says. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who, were, uh, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go You have the words of eternal life. God promises us that if we study and know his word, he will help us recall it when we need it. Matthew 10, 19, and 20, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. The context here, church, is persecution. And I believe that what Jesus said here was prophetic. He was promising help to those who found themselves persecuted in their faith. He would see to it that they would have supernatural recall and wisdom of speech. And if you ever read stories about martyrs and how they went to their death, you'll find this is true. And it's my belief that this is exactly what happened with the great sermon that Stephen gave in Acts chapter 7. One of a great spot of scripture to look at. Right before he was stoned, by the way. He gave a great sermon. I would call it a sermon. Do you think that Stephen knew nothing of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit just put words in his mouth? Or did he know scripture so well that when the time came and the need presented itself that the Holy Spirit had a fertile field to work with in Stephen's mind since he had dedicated himself to knowing the word of God? I think it's the second choice. Again, Jesus also told us that the Holy Spirit would both teach us, mostly through Scripture, and bring to our remembrance things that he said. John 14, 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is actually part of inspiration as we talk about the Gospels being written. Jesus made sure that the Gospels recorded true events about his ministry, Because the Holy Spirit was the helper who helped the disciples to remember the teachings. And therefore, they were able to write them down accurately. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to Jesus and helps the believer to have confidence in the gospel. John 15, 26, and 27, when the helper comes, 
whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And then he said in chapter 16, verse 13, and when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And also... Some of you heard this morning, Scripture was for public reading. Colossians 4.16, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read among, in the church of the Laodiceans, and see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. So, Scripture is for public reading. Scripture was to be obeyed. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and 15, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And anyone claiming to profit had better be sure that his words are aligned with the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And finally, the, teacher, the Spirit teaches us and also interprets for us, 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So who better is there to interpret Scripture for us than the Holy Spirit who inspired it? He's our best teacher. But we also have to be diligent in learning. No teacher can force a student to learn. And I know some teachers are in here, so you could raise your hand and say amen to that. I've seen students that I was students when I was in classmates with that they almost had the attitude like, go ahead, teacher, try and teach me something, you know? We have to cooperate. We have to be diligent. We can't just say, oh, Holy Spirit, teach me. As I continue not opening my Bible, not listening to preaching, not listening to teaching, not ever praying, but teach me anyway, please, Lord. No, that doesn't work. We have to take an active role in studying Scripture for ourselves. And if we don't, we'll lose out on some important knowledge. So we study using tools we have. So we, the Holy Spirit teaches us as we read. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. But at the same time, we use methods that we learn to help us understand Scripture better. We learn about grammar. I talk about grammar a lot. Are you getting tired of grammar yet? I love talking about grammar, especially in the Bible, because we need to understand that the words are not always the surface words. We need to know what the grammar is, right? And so we learn about the cultures, for example. That helps us to have insight when we see someone, uh, some command or some suggestion or some way of living, and we're like, what does that mean? You know. And we, so we try to learn the cultures of the Bible. That helps us to, to um, understand it better. And then we study it together often interacting with each other, and that's helpful. So how do we know these things are true? We seek the scriptures to learn. 
And this is my last passage, Acts 17, 11, 12. These Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why were they more noble? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. Why did they therefore believe? We'll talk a little about the grammar here. What was right before the therefore? They studied the scripture. They examined to see if what they were being told was true. In other words, they compared what they were being taught to what they already knew was true, the Old Testament. And as they did so, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So they studied the scripture. And I love what that says, more noble. You know, we, we don't have such a, well, we do have classes in, in a sense in our society, but in the days where there was nobility and there was like the serfs, you know, people of nobility were the ones that were educated usually. No one else could afford it. But people of nobility would have training. They'd be taught in logic. They'd be taught in strategy. They'd be taught in trying to, uh, manage a home, all kinds of things. And that's how people in nobility got more and more affluent and other people always stayed right there. We can be noble in the word of God by studying scripture, by knowing it better, and by dedicating ourselves to that. And so we will do that. And in a moment here, we'll, we'll separate out again into groups of three or four, I think, Um, And on the last page of your new notes for today, there should be some study questions. But before we do that, I just want to ask if if anyone was aware of this. I found this little bit of trivia today that I found interesting. Did, Did anyone here, raise your hand if you knew this, did you know that the Jehovah's Witnesses do not celebrate Halloween? Did anyone know that? Lorna knew that. Do you know why? Because they don't like strangers knocking on their door. (laughs) sorry okay so i just want to say a prayer over your time of uh small group time i'll be available if you have a question i can try to help you with just raise your hand otherwise i'll just let you go to your groups of three or four and maybe in the last five or ten minutes we might come back and just have one final discussion okay so let's pray lord thank you for what you're teaching us thank you Again, Lord, for these people who have come on a Sunday evening to learn more about you and your word. I pray as we take a small group time, Lord, that you would help everybody to sharpen iron together. Iron sharpening iron. Challenging one another to do better and to grow and to mature and to understand better your word, Lord. Thank you. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. that one more slide it'll stop recording.